Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell, the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for this podcast is Dr. Jerome Williams, the F.J. Haney Centennial Professor in Communications at the University of Texas, where he also holds an appointment in the Center for African and African American Studies. A well-known as one of the leading experts in the country on marketing, uh, Dr. Williams has contributed through his scholarship and through his work as an expert witness, uh, testifying before bodies of government and the like, uh, to help improve the public good. So, Jerome, welcome. Thank you, Kelly. I'm very happy to have you here. Uh, we just recorded a previous podcast on general issues pertaining to marketing, and I'd like to talk in this podcast about multicultural marketing, which is a very interesting, controversial, and potentially important topic. So let's begin by you explaining what multicultural marketing means. Well, multicultural marketing basically refers to marketing to different consumer segments that represent uh, away from the norms that we might expect. For ex essentially, uh, for example, race, ethnicity. It might be based on religion. It might be based on gender. Maybe based on sexual orientation. And so, it's more. Most people tend to think of it as just race and ethnicity, but multicultural really encompasses all these diverse segments. All right. So some people refer to this as targeted marketing. I believe that you might do a marketing campaign targeted to a specific racial group to a, to men versus women or the opposite or whatever. Is that correct? Well, target marketing has been has been used to almost synonymous with race and ethnic marketing, but it's really, uh, the way I look at it, target marketing is really marketing because if you're going to market something, you usually have to decide what type of segment you want to go after and you target it, your message toward that segment. But the way it's been used, particularly in the press and the way that sometimes uh, marketing has been vilified, uh, it's almost as if it's a, it's a bad thing to go after a particular segment, particularly if it's a racial ethnic segment, because the assumption is that you're exploiting that segment. Now, I don't necessarily feel that that's always the case. There are instances where segments have been exploited, but target marketing is really, uh, you might say it's a neutral concept. It can be used in a bad way, but target marketing itself can be good. You can target computers to certain types of uh, age segments. You can target cars. You can target a lot of things. Right. I'd like to talk about how the issue of multicultural marketing applies in the food arena, but before we do that, I know there are precedents that are interesting in this case, like alcohol and tobacco. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yes. If you go back about 20 years, there was a really a lot of media attention to targeting, and that's really where the bad rap came for target marketing, because what most people outside of the marketing field, whenever they heard the term target marketing, it usually was used in the context of targeting high alcohol content, malt liquors to African-Americans are targeting certain types of cigarette products uh, to women or racial ethnic groups. And so from that type of exposure, it just became synonymous with something that's evil and bad and corrupt, and we, we want to avoid target marketing was really kind of what came out of that. And I had a lot of debates with people about that and tried to convince people that when you really want to target particularly racial ethnic groups, that's good because those have been invisible segments for the most part over the years, but you really need to promote good things. In fact, right now, uh, the Census Bureau is target marketing the census. They, it's what the most uh, extensive multicultural targeting campaign in the history of advertising. Well, that's a very interesting point. So um, I, I've heard say, and this is probably true given what you've just said, that these invisible, previously invisible parts of the population 
uh, actually deserve to have whatever the mainstream influences are. And marketing can be good, it can be bad, but you, you hope it would be the better part than the worst part. But just exposing these populations to marketing is considered an advance, it sounds like. Well, that's exactly right. You know, my argument has been that if you look back historically, you go back 40, 50 years, uh, all the companies should have been targeting these particular segments. But what tended to happen is that many times the alcohol and tobacco companies were in the forefront of that, and the other companies that should have been there targeting weren't doing it. And so then, by default, uh, targeted marketing became associated with alcohol and tobacco companies. So what did occur with alcohol and tobacco? You mentioned the malt liquor example in particular, but was there a lot of uh, marketing that was um, multicultural in nature that specifically went at segments of the population that might be vulnerable to some of these health-related problems? Yes, absolutely. In fact, there was one product called Uptown Cigarettes that was targeted toward African Americans. There was another product called Power Master, which was a high-alcohol malt liquor that was targeted toward African Americans. There were certain cigarettes that were targeted toward women. Uh, interestingly, there was even one cigarette that was targeted toward the white population, but uh, it was really targeted toward the uh, perhaps lower socioeconomic class, and there was really some pushback from that from various people. So each time there was some targeting efforts, uh, there were people that did rise up in protest, and particularly with Uptown and uh, the um, Malt Liquor Power Master, both of those were withdrawn from the marketplace as a result of consumer protests. Oh, that's interesting. So let's talk about the food arena and where things might stand with that. Um, is there evidence of multicultural marketing in the food arena? Well, there's, there's no question about it. If you, you can look at it by neighborhoods, if in billboards, you can look at it by programs that are what we call African-American prime time, the shows that African-Americans tend to watch, and you can gauge how much food marketing is on those particular stations. You can do content analyses of magazines. You could look at the expenditures by the food and beverage company, and you can compare that to the percentage of the population. Now, the flip side of that is that if you look at, let's say, uh, oh, let's say carbonated beverages, for example, and you find that uh, 40, 50 percent of your market uh, is coming from a t particular segment, then you would say from a marketing standpoint, then I should be spending dollars on that. But it really comes down to the chicken and egg question, which uh, really is, is really the critical foundation point here. Uh, are those segments consuming at a higher rate uh, due to the advertising, or is there a natural preference there, and advertisers are just kind of capitalizing on it? And of course, arguments will be made on both sides of that. So how can that issue be addressed? I think through research, uh, and, and uh, from my analysis and the studies that I've done, I think there's a little bit of both that's occurring, and um, because of the fact of the matter is if an advertiser uh, finds that there's a market that there's not going to be a preference for his or her product, they're not going to want to spend money on that. But by the same token, if you're spending money on a particular segment and you're generating demand, and that demand can be self-feeding uh, and it just increases demand for that kind of product, the more you advertise, and so it becomes really almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if you look at the, the especially high rates of obesity and diabetes in African-American, Hispanic populations, in, in poor, the poor demographic groups in general, um, there are a lot of things that would contribute to that, certainly, and one couldn't pin the blame solely on marketing, even if one is a marketing critic. But do you think that the marketing that's done specifically to those groups for particularly unhealthy foods is part of the picture? 
Well, it's certainly part of the problem. And as I often say, uh, advertising is a highly visible kind of thing. And so it's, it's kind of an easy target, so to speak. But, uh, you know, in work that we've done through the Institute of Medicine, a report that we did on food marketing to children, it focused on children, but we looked at all the different factors that contributed toward issues of obesity. And with any population, there are going to be multiple factors. And so I would often say that uh, marketing and advertising is part of the problem, but it's not the problem. And so you really have to look at it in the context of the bigger picture. And there are sociocultural, historical uh, factors, uh, factors that are related to particular populations that uh, go back generations in the way that they've eaten, uh, things that are very traditional, uh, attitudes that we've found out through focus groups about exercise. There are just so many things that come into play, but certainly you, you don't want to ignore that part that advertising is playing. But as I've often said, uh, there's an old African proverb that when in the jungle, uh, don't continue to swat at gnats and get eaten by the tiger. And basically it's saying that uh, advertising is part of the problem. If you focus just on that, there may be bigger issues that may envelop or, or swallow you up. So to the extent that advertising is con contributing to the ill health of particularly vulnerable populations, is there anything that can and should be done to protect them? And, and that's a difficult question. I mean, in the sense that I, I think there should be, but Obviously, if you look at the bigger picture, uh, if you look at many populations, particularly minority populations, that have many times uh, been exploited, uh, there is a sense of whether we are treating them in a paternalistic way. So that's got to be balanced out. I think the other issue that comes into play uh, is the factor that many minority populations, particularly household incomes, are lower. So if you're going to come up with solutions, if you're going to restrict advertising, like we talk now about this, the, the soda tax and other issues and removing unhealthy foods, and I think those are all good ideas. But if you don't take into consideration the economic consequences, then you know you may be banging your head against the wall. And so I often tell people when I deal with people in the public health community, let's come up with workable solutions. And all of these ideas seem pretty good, but let's make sure that we don't put families, uh, we exacerbate a problem by not recognizing some of the economic consequences. So your point is, is very well taken, that a lot of things would have to be done in a coordinated way, taking into account the particular sociodemographics of a population, all those things which I think are, are certainly true. That makes all the sense in the world. When, when you mentioned that, yes, something should probably be done to help defend certain parts of the population against uh, the impact of marketing, to the extent it's contributing to the problem, and you know, who, who knows how, how what that is, but let's just say it's contributing at least some, then what in particular do you think might be done? Um, I mean, if you, would you recommend particular public policies or education campaigns or would public uh, outrage or demand that these practices change be a mechanism? I'm curious to think how, how this might actually take place. Well, you know, it's interesting, uh, as I've gone around the country and I've worked with neighborhoods at, at the community level, uh, the, the one thing that I often say to people as I talk about target marketing in general and multicultural marketing is that there is no such thing as the African-American market. There is no such thing as the Hispanic-Latino market. And by that I mean it's not a monolithic uh, group of people that all think alike. So with many of the policies, as I've collected data, I find that there's some diversity of opinions within the neighborhood. For example, you go to California and the ordinance about not putting more fast food places or letting fast food establishments, new franchises be granted, most of those were in minority neighborhoods. Now, it was interesting that there were many 
people, many community folks are very much in favor of that, but there are many others that were against it. So it's not an easy solution. And so uh, we basically have to recognize that there's a very heterogeneous group of people even within a racial ethnic segment. So any solutions we come up with, it has to recognize all of those feelings, opinions, concerns. But I do think they're workable solutions, and I, and I do think that it's important to get community input. And uh, you're not going to get consensus, but I think we can come up with solutions that are going to have an impact. So it sounds like there's a clear need for more work on this topic, both research to pin down how much of it it is, how much of it's occurring, what impact it's having on particular parts of the population. But it also sounds like a lot more groundwork is needed on how to get into communities and uh, get a feel for how uh, public policies would affect communities to get buy-in and things like that. A lot to do, it sounds like. It, it, there's, there's no question about it. You know, we wrote a paper a number of years ago, and we were talking about some of these very issues. And one of the examples we used was the Got Milk campaign, and it was used and targeted to certain communities and some certain African-American communities, but they didn't recognize the fact that many African-Americans are lactose intolerant. And so here you had a campaign that seemed pretty good on the surface. And so what happens many times, uh, if you have public policy and public health issues, uh, you're looking at what you can do for the good of a community, the good of a uh, the recipient of the program, but sometimes you've got to take off that hat and say, you know, let me step over here into the community and see how it's impacting the community. Let me look at it from the community's perspective. What's going to work best? And in that instance of the Got Milk campaign, and probably they could have done something else uh, rather than, because they were not recognizing the lactose intolerance problem. So that, that's what I really encourage people to do, really look at it not only from the perspective from the public health person who's administering the program and trying to push something that will be uh, beneficial, but look at it in terms of the impact on the community and get community input and, and work with the community and make them a partner in understanding how this is going to uh, assist and help. And once you get buy-in from that perspective, I think you'll be a lot more successful in a lot of these programs. Well, thank you, Jerome. This is an extremely interesting, complicated, and important topic. So it's nice that you've done such good work on the topic over the years and are helping bring some clarity to it and are calling for more people to be involved in this important topic. So thank you so much for joining hey, us. Thank you. So our guest today was Dr. Jerome Williams, the F.J. Haney Centennial Professor in Communication at the University of Texas. Uh, please visit our website, www.yaleruddcenter.org. For a variety of resources, a free email newsletter that goes out monthly, a list of other podcasts that we've recorded, uh, legislative updates, etc. Thank you very much.